Well, as I introduced uh, this series uh, called It's Time To, uh, the kind of, sort of the um, idea was that as, as humans, we crave certainty. And um, I think in a lot of ways, we can define our humanity with certainty. And even though we live in uncertain uh, times or we experience uncertainty, there's something about uh, it's something about certainty that really is important to us. Uncertainty causes anxiety or discomfort or just gets under our skin. And we tend to express uh, that this sense of certainty, whether it's true or not, uh, in a number of ways. And one of the ways is actually through a phrase, it's time to. It's time to wake up. It's, it's time to eat. It's time to do homework. And for parents, we love saying stuff like that. You know, there's no question about what they're supposed to do. It's very clear, unequivocal. Um, or it's, perhaps it's time to sleep and it's time for vacation, what have you. And the Bible expresses certainty in a number of areas. Um, although there is uncertainty in aspects of faith, but the Bible does express certainty in, in some of the areas of our lives. And one of them is about, around spiritual growth. If you have a Bible this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to Second Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 18. And... This is one of the, the actually last books written in the New Testament, if you're aware of that or not. And Second uh, Peter is often overlooked. In fact, I, I can't remember a time I actually did a Bible study around Second Peter. And it's, uh, it's just a jewel of uh, a letter from, from Peter right before he's about to die. And he's, di- he's going to die execution style, crucified upside down. Because he says he's not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. So they actually crucify him upside down, which is even worse. But this is his la- these are his last words, the, the, the last, last verse of chapter 3 of Second Peter. It says this, Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation. So what, what Peter is expressing to us, and what we see elsewhere too in the Bible, is that spiritual growth. For, for you and I, when we say yes to Jesus Christ as our Savior and the leader of our lives, when we say yes to that and become a follower of Jesus, that it's actually possible that, that not only is it possible, but the Bible says you, you should, you must, you ought to grow in your spiritual faith. In other words, it's not static. It's not like once you become saved, you reach that level and that's it, and you just kind of bide your time until Jesus returns or until you die and go to heaven. Um, in the days that you have here on earth, you have, you have the opportunity, I have the opportunity to grow in our spiritual faith. There's actually measurable ways that you and I can grow in our faith. And during this uh, month of June, we're looking at some of those spiritual exercises, some of those sp- sort of spiritual disciplines, some of those um, places, things we can do in our lives to grow in our faith. Last week, we launched the series with talking about prayer based on a research project I did among 12 people in our church um, in varying ages, prayer was the most influential way for them to grow in their faith. And this morning, I want to talk about giving. And as we look at these, these sort of spiritual exercises, they have measurable differences for us, just like in our physical fitness. If we want to see um, perhaps our weight or our health uh, improve, there's things that we notice when we engage in perhaps exercise. If we run, for example, um, uh, this past five or six weeks, I've, I've started running again, and I have a very love-hate relationship with, with running. And I'm doing this for Team World Vision, and uh, it's, a, it's a way to raise money for clean water for children in Africa. And yesterday morning, Sam Randall and I, our student ministries director, 
um, actually uh, went down to Minneapolis area by Minnehaha Falls because they brought together all the different people that are doing this race. And of course, not everybody was there, but a number of people were from different churches and some pastors were there. And there's probably about 30 or 40 of us at 7.30 in the morning on a Saturday. Okay, running by itself is just really brutal, but 7.30 on a Saturday morning in Minneapolis. I live in Chaska, it's a little bit of a drive. But we're down there, and Sam and I were down there. It was just so cool, you know, to see that. And then we went for about a five-mile run. And um, when I came back to my car, you know, I took my running shoes off. I'm sore. And Sam, being the 20-something that he is, you know, you know just great shape. He's like Harley Evening, you know, Harley out of shape. Uh, the run didn't really affect him that much. In fact, we were running. We were running together. He was doing most of the talking. He was kind of talking about this, and I'm, yes, yeah, okay. <laughs> One word answers. So he did most of the talking, so that really helped me to keep going. And I noticed, so when we got to the cars, uh, you know, I'm like stretching out. I'm making sure my joints are still there, and, and I don't have any you know, hamstring pulls or anything. And Sam hops in his car and he leaves. And I'm sitting there like for 15 or 20 minutes, just stretching out. So, you know, there, there's, there's effects, good, good side effects to that. You know, besides me being a little uh, limp this morning and also I have a blister on my foot, besides that, there's actually positive benefits. I, I actually feel better, more stamina. Uh, my waist, it, my pants aren't as snug as they used to be uh, five weeks ago. I'm, I'm seeing measurable differences just in my own fitness, endurance, stamina, things like that. In a similar way, when we engage in certain kind of spiritual disciplines, and it's not exhaustive, by the way, but there are some key ones the Bible talks about, um, we actually see a measurable difference in our faith, in our life, is that we engage in things like prayer and giving and serving, is that we'll see a, a better capacity in our lives for humility, We'll see a better capacity to worship God. We'll see a better capacity to forgive others. We'll see a better capacity and willingness in our lives to actually ask for forgiveness. Now, it's not 100% guaranteed. It's not perfect. We'll slip up and it won't always work out that way. But we see a measurable difference, just like in physical fitness and with a diet. And so in this month of June, we're looking at some of those, those key ones. And this morning, we're talking about financial giving. And as I bring up financial giving... It's often viewed like a dirty word in the church, right? It's a sort of a dirty term, financial giving. It's like you cringe. In fact, over the last 20 years, um, I started in full-time pastoral ministry in 1995. I can probably count on one hand the number of sermons I've heard during that time on financial giving. And it's been avoided for the most part by the church, and I would say the evangelical church, because whatever poll you look at, People who stop attending a church or don't attend a church, the number one or number two reason is money. All the church wants is my money. And it reminds me of a story of a church that I know, and this is a true story, as opposed to false stories that I tell, but this is a true story. Uh, a true story of a church I knew several years ago, a very small congregation, and they had a pastor, kind of an itinerant pastor, who would travel uh, to their church in, in a few other churches uh, on a Sunday morning to kind of make ends meet. And on top of that, he also worked at, uh, another, another job. He's a bivocational pastor. So he would preach at this church, and he would go to the next one. But he preached at this church, and it was a very moving sermon, I was told. A very poignant sermon. And after he preached, it was time for the offering. And the, choir, the small little choir that they had, five-person choir, came up, and the worship director was up there. 
and, and they performed just a very compelling song as they received the offering. It was their tradition after the offering that, that deacons would go in the back office and they'd cult the offering. Well, they counted the offering that morning and it wasn't enough. So they came back out. One of the deacons came up to the worship leader and whispered in his ear. And the worship director said to the church, okay, because most of their offering went to the, the salary or the money for the pastor. And the, and the worship uh, leader said to the church, the offering wasn't enough. We've got to take a second one. So they took a second offering. If you can imagine that. So the choir sang louder and longer as they received that second offering. And we hear stories like that, and we immediately re- sort of um, reduce or conclude that's what the church is about. It's all about money. And, and we tend to define the church so many, so many times about that. Yet, for us, when it comes to the topic of money, you know, we need to deal with the tension it causes in a, in a good way. I love what Phil Piancy writes, and, and Phil Piancy is one of the best Christian authors in my, in my um, estimation, and he's had an influence on me when it comes to prayer, when it comes to Christian living, when it comes to worship and, and relationship with Christ. And Yancey writes this in a very honest way, like he does, which I just absolutely love. He writes this, Many Christians have one issue that haunts them and never falls silent. For some involves sexual identity. For others, it's a permanent battle against doubt. The issue that haunts me is money. It hangs over me. It keeps me off balance, restless, uncomfortable, nervous. I'm, I feel pulled in opposite directions over the money issue. Sometimes I wish I would sell all my possessions, he writes, and go move into a Christian commune and live in intentional poverty. And then he writes this, at other times I want to rid myself of the guilt of money and enjoy the fruit of our nation's prosperity. And then he, and he closes with this, and you'll see the quote up here on the slide. Mostly I wish I did not have to think about money at all. But I must come to terms with, with the Bible's very strong statements about money. And that's where we're at this morning. We, we need to confront this. We need to, need to deal with this. Because in the Bible, the topic of money is mentioned over 800 times in giving. In fact, Jesus mentioned more teaching on money than on heaven and hell. So it's an important topic for us. And instead of being a, a dirty word, we need to confront this because it's a biblical issue. It's a biblical issue for us to look at and to pay attention to. Because I think for some of us, that tension that we feel when it comes to money is that on one hand, we, we just want to avoid it, like what Yancey said, and just sell everything and go live in a Christian commune and, and not have to deal with this money issue, that we, the fact that we have money. And St. Francis of Assisi actually did something like this. Perhaps you heard of him before. He lived in the Middle Ages, came from a very affluent family, sold everything he had, and took the Bible very literally about selling all your possessions and giving it to the poor. He did that to the point that he had no clothes left. Historians actually believe he lived naked for about a year. Okay? I don't advise that in Minnesota, by the way, but that's actually what he did. That was one end. Or the other end is simply that we just... We enjoy our wealth and sort of ignore this tension of money, but maybe once in a while we'll give to something. And I want to talk about just a few different categories this morning when it comes to giving. It's perhaps when it comes to giving, I'm going to call this impulsive giving. And And this is where 
this is where we, we give um, just once in a while. It might be for a cause. It might be once in a while in the church. And it, it might be for the Salvation Army. It might be for clean water for children in Africa. But we, we give impulsively. And by the way, as I go through this teaching this morning, I don't want you to feel guilt or, or shame at all. As I talked about last week when it came to prayer, is that when it comes to prayer, and I think it, it's, it's true of giving, is that oftentimes we, f- we feel guilt and shame like God is up, you know, in heaven, and perhaps he has an angel with one of those banker green hats, and he's like tabulating what you give and what you don't give, okay? God doesn't work that way, okay? There's like a ledger keeping track, uh, for us to be aware of that. But some of us might be in this, this camp where we're kind of an impulsive giver. And I'm going I'm to talk about three categories this morning. And I want you this morning perhaps to take a step to the next, the next category, wherever you are. The Bible doesn't talk about or teach about impulsive giving. There's nowhere in the scripture about giving impulsively. What it actually talks about, one of the things it talks about, is we'd say obedient giving. And maybe for you this morning that you would classify, classify yourself as an impulsive giver. And, and perhaps for you this morning, the step to take as we're in this series, it's time to, is to move from impulsive giving to obedient giving. Because the Bible talks about certain obedience, a standard to giving. I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament, uh, to your left, if you have your Bibles, to Malachi. Or as I used to say when I was a youth pastor and some of the kids thought it was funny, Malachi, the Italian prophet. <laughs> I got a few chuckles. That was good. Malachi 3.10. Malachi 3.10. And this is a very informative text for us when it comes to, to giving because there's a number of verses and I could spend the whole morning talking about this obedience and giving but, but the Lord speaks through Malachi to the Israelites and says, says this in verse 10, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heavenly armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you and I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Now, this passage has been misapplied in a number of ways and one of them is, is prosperity gospel or prosperity theology. When I was in Africa, it was actually one of the biggest challenges for Africans that were living just dirt poor is that preachers would come along and use verses like this and say, if you give of your goat or if you give of your chickens, then God's going to bless you with a bigger house and things like that. And in America, you know, we hear the similar thing is that we give our money to God and be an obedient giver, then we're going to be promised a bigger house, a BMW, nice vacations to the Bahamas, things like that. That's not what God is talking about. What God is simply talking about, because the blessings can come in a variety of ways, immaterial or material. But what he's talking about is the importance of a tithe. And without getting into a kind of a theological uh, debate here or looking at a number of verses, because in the Old Testament it varied perhaps 30% to 40% at times, it's simply a good gauge in churches today where where a tithe is about 10% of what you make. So with that, is God is saying, be obedient giver. Be an obedient giver where you're giving 10% of, of what you have back to the Lord. And a lot of you here have been doing that. You have been faithful givers over the years. Those who have been coming for, you know, uh, 28 years, 
those who've been coming for five years, your faithful giving has made a difference as you've given your tithes and your offerings to the Lord for our church community. And I just want to say on behalf of our leadership team and our staff, thank you. Thank you for being an obedient giver. But for some of us, that might be the step that we need to, be, need to, need to take is to move from impulsive giving to obedient giving. Because as we engage in such exercises, it actually will help in our spiritual growth and our spiritual faith is to move towards obedient giving. And no matter what you make or what you have, you and I are called as followers of Jesus to give on a, on a, on a regular basis. And I want each of us to kind of take that step this morning to be a basic giver, an obedient giver. But not only that, I also want us to move kind of to a, to a third category. I'm going to call this generous giving. And the Bible has a lot to say around generous giving. And maybe for you, you've been an obedient giver for a number of years, but when it comes to generous giving, that's a new step for you. That's going to be a, a, a step in terms of your spiritual faith. And again, as you take these steps, I really think you're going to see a measurable difference in your spiritual growth, in your relationship with God, in um, what you sense from God, and as you walk with Him. It's not simply just a transaction that you give money to the church and that's it, but actually, I really believe in how you handle your money and how you give of that to the Lord it makes a difference in your own spiritual faith. But generous giving is something, I think, that's easier said than done. Because to take steps towards generosity, we have to do what Yancey talked about. We have to confront our handling of money and this tension of money. Some time ago, an opportunity came up for me to help somebody in need. And they needed clothing, they needed some, some food. And I felt a prompting of God, even though they didn't attend uh, this church at all, but I felt a prompting from God to help them. And um, as I sensed from God, and I felt, man, this is an exciting opportunity to really help them. And this is, I think, just after I started on staff here, and uh, um, this person just was kind of sharing where they were at. I talked to them about a long-term financial plan and, and trying to get out of debt, things like that, and they were willing to take those steps. But I felt a nudging from God uh, to, to come alongside them and to actually help them. And the time I, I experienced that nudge from God, it just seemed like if you have those moments, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just this mysterious nudge from God that you're joining God in his work in the world. And I was so excited to kind of do something to help this person. But my excitement dissipated when I checked my checking account balance, and I didn't have much in there at all, actually, to help him. And that excitement soon went out the window. And I couldn't really help that person beyond some, some very basics. And I can't tell you the feeling I felt in my life, that I didn't have enough that, to be generous. Because this was beyond regular giving, it was beyond regular things, that, that there was this, this spontaneous opportunity to be generous. And God was nudging me towards that. And yet, I couldn't give to that. And there's, no, uh, there's not many feelings worse than that. I felt like I, I really couldn't join God in doing something like that. And it caused me to go back and reevaluate um, my own financial plan, my budget, things like that, because I want to be available. I want to be in this third category where I'm liberated enough in my finances that when something pops up, 
that I can give towards that. Because some of you know exactly what that's like. Is there a better feeling than that? To be just tapped on the shoulder by, from God and just kind of jump in and give towards someone's need. It, it's, it's almost like you have a sort of taste of heaven. And I want more of that in my life. And I think taking that step towards being a generous giver is something that um, we need to do and the Bible teaches on. In fact, in Mark chapter 12, if you want to turn to that, we see an example of generous giving. And it's a text that, again, like, like Second Peter, I think is often overlooked. In fact, I can't remember hearing a sermon on this little story. It's Mark chapter 12, verse 41. It's just kind of, it's kind of at the end of chapter 12, and, and it's just a remarkable story of, in terms of what's happening and sort of the context and the venue that Jesus is in the temple and what's happening here. Okay, let's pick up in Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Can you imagine in the offering time, like Jesus is sitting in the back in a chair. Can you imagine? That's what was going on. Many rich people put in large amounts, okay? The code word for rich people were the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the uh, sort of religiously impressive people, okay? They put in large amounts. Okay, this is stop there for a second. Now, I did a little research on this, that the uh, sort of collection plates weren't plates, they were uh, uh, containers, and they were actually big containers, and they were made out of metal. And when these people would give money, they would bring bags of coins because as they poured them into the, co- the collection retainer, it would make this cacophony, this loud sound in the temple. Do we have a sound of that, Matt? Like that. A cacophony. And the louder you can make that sound, it didn't matter how much it was to them, the Pharisees and others. They just wanted to be impressive. So they just wanted to have enough more money than the person next to them. They want that sound to be really loud. Okay? So we, we have that. So their purpose is re- really about, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm religious because I am pouring all these coins, and you can hear it reverberate off the temple walls. Okay? And we pick it up here in verse 42. Then, on, in contrast, a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. And perhaps it had a sound like this. That was it. Not much of a sound at all. Okay? And when we think about the, the widow, back in that day, widows were, and orphans were often referred to as the mo- most obscure, the most overlooked, the most powerless, the most vulnerable people in society. Oftentimes, they were uh, sent to the fringes of a society. And this poor widow comes. This is a true story. She comes and she brings her, her coins. And it barely makes a sound, if at all. She's like at the end of the line. You know, probably had to wait some time after the Pharisees had, you know, dropped all their coins. And then she drops a couple of coins. And it barely makes a sound at all. But that does not escape the notice of Jesus. I love this. Jesus called his disciples to him. I just sort of imagine and picture Jesus, you know, the, the disciples kind of looking around the temple. Historians say when this was happening, it was actually a, a very, very busy time in the temple. And a lot of things going on, a lot of busyness. And I, I imagine the disciples kind of talking to this person or that person. They're kind of looking around. Yet Jesus calls them over to him. He says, check it out. Look at this. 
says this, I tell you the truth, the poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. That's generosity. That's generosity. It's a very important mark as you uh, understand the ministry and teaching of Jesus. This is not a standalone teaching. It actually infuses the way he approached life and the way he taught. I think in many ways, Jesus has a lot of common ground with this widow because she gave everything she had, and so did Jesus. Jesus lived a generous life. He gave everything he had, including his life. Generous giving. Generosity. And as we look at this passage, it's interesting too because Jesus is not elsewhere in the temple. He's not like in the sanctuary. He's not at the altar, which you you would think he would be there. He's not in the library. He's not at different parts. He's actually right there uh, at the treasury. And I think that's an important point for us to note is that Jesus is seeing the faithfulness in people being expressed in what they give to the temple. So we read this in terms of, of uh, the text. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but the widow gave a small amount, but it was a lot more, as Jesus says. Gave everything that she had. That's impressive, and that's something for us to, to note. She gave everything she had. And what I love about this, too, is this whole teaching on generosity wasn't something that simply stayed with Jesus, but it actually infused the whole Christian movement for centuries forward. If you fast forward from this time, 30 AD or so, and if you move into the first couple of centuries, second and third century, we find that these Jesus followers, they're called followers of the way, they're early Christians, one of the marks that they were known for was their generosity. If you were to talk about brands, like the golden arches of McDonald's, or the swoosh of Nike, or that green mermaid person of Starbucks, whatever that is. Uh, They have a brand or a mark. You kind of know them by that. And historians note that the mark or the brand of the early Christians was one of generosity. Unbelievable generosity. It was almost as if this teaching on the poor widow sort of carried along over the centuries of time because they would have had that text in their hands. They would have known that story really well. I think that, coupled with the sacrifice of Christ, had big difference on the early followers of Jesus in these first few centuries, the early church. And this we see in so many ways. Now, there is a man in the second century and third century by the name of Dionysius, who was a playwright and also he was a historian. And he wrote about the common life in the pagan culture um, of the Roman Empire, which pretty much met everywhere because they, they controlled and led everywhere in the world. And in those days, as Dionysius was writing, is that in the Roman Empire, every town, every city, every village was vulnerable for a calamity every 13 or 14 years. It seemed like, if you look at history, every 13 years or so, a major calamity would come. That there'd be a major fire, because a lot of the homes were built with flammable materials. Or an earthquake would come, and the buildings of these cities were not built with strong structures, so they'd crumble. Or a plague would come, and they didn't have medicine, so people would die. So during this time, Dionysius writes this. 
The pagans thrust aside anyone who began to be sick and kept at a distance even from their dearest friends. They cast the sufferers half dead into the ditches and left them unburied. And if you read about this in, in the, the history, is that they, they didn't even care about their children. They didn't even care about their aging parents. The, the, the sort of the brand or the mark known for the pagan culture at that time was save thyself. So when a calamity came, they just ran. They got out of town. They got out of Dodge fast to save their lives. And they would leave everything behind. Look out for number one. Now in contrast, the Christians lived differently. The poor widow and her example, the teaching and and example of Jesus Christ. Um, An historian writes this, that the Christians living at that same time as the pagan culture, he notes this. The Christians were the only people who admit such terrible ills showed their fellow feeling and humanity by their actions. Day by day would busy themselves with attending the dead and burying them. Not just the Christians being buried, everybody in their city. It didn't matter. Others gathered in one spot at all, all who were afflicted by hunger throughout the whole city and gave bread to all. Generous giving. When this became known, the people, that is the pagan population, glorified the Christian God and convinced by the very facts, confessed that the Christians alone were truly pious and religious. What a powerful summary. It's this generosity. It's the service. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that was spreading around the Mediterranean. And as a result of that, as we see in the third century and later, is that, that Christian uh, communities began to spring up. The growth of Christianity just took off. And, and the primary reason behind that was the gospel, generosity, and service. The Christians were known for that. It's very important for us. And that was what the widow did. And Jesus elevated her above all the people of her generation and said to the disciples, this is how I want you to live your lives. And I want to encourage us, Maple Grove Covenant Church, um, to be a community for us, to live our lives in such a way, to move wherever we're at to the next step and to hopefully generous giving, that we would be a generous church, more of a generous church. Because the fact is, this church is a generous church. You know, our average attendance is about 300 people or so. And um, uh, typically a church of our size, and the experience I have and other pastor colleagues I know, um, a church of this size typically would have a budget maybe 450000 to $500,000 a year. Okay? And if you've been to our annual meeting like last week, was it last week? Yeah, uh, last week, uh, you realize that our budget is double that. Generosity is a mark of this church. A church of our size to have... That kind of a budget and that kind of giving is remarkable. And I just want to encourage us to continue with that generosity. And perhaps you're here and you haven't done that and taken that step yet. I want to encourage you to step in and be a part of what God is doing. Because I'm so excited about our future and what God has for us. Because I really think, I really believe this, that this church has been organized and formulated by God in a certain way, and I think generosity is a big part of that. For example, I have a friend of mine who's a pastor. has a church of about 750, 800 people, and their budget is very comparable. Okay? 
There's something about what God is doing in this church and the opportunities that we have right now and into the future to be um, to have this mark of generosity. So I want us to encourage or to continue with that as well. So as we reflect on this teaching this morning, just a few things, first of all, is for you and I to reflect on where are we at when it comes to this sort of giving? Where are we at? What steps do we need to be taking? Because I want to make the step more towards generous giving. And, you know, what, four or five years ago when I missed that opportunity, I had an opportunity again recently, uh, again, a person that doesn't attend this church that needed some funds for a funeral for a relative. And I can't tell you the feeling that I had when I was able to help this person with finances to give towards a funeral service for a relative. It's like, you do something like that, it's amazing. I mean, it, it just grew my faith in so many ways. It's like, I want more and more of those opportunities. So for us to take those steps as a church, collectively and individually, just a few notes here. Maybe for you and your spouse is, number one, you're going to see this on the slides, reflect on your history with money. You know, some of us come from poor backgrounds or perhaps um, backgrounds where we didn't have a lot of money. And when we were in school, we had to wear the same clothes every other day or so. So when it comes to money, it's like when we have money, we just kind of hang on to it because we're not quite sure if we're going to have it the next week or so. Perhaps for you, it's to evaluate that. What's your history with money? Others of us grew up in affluent families. And as a result, we become ashamed about money. Or we, in some ways, like uh, Yancey, we don't, we, don't, we don't like that tension around money, so we try to avoid that. But how can you kind of reconcile that and say, you know what, I want to be a generous giver. Second is to get out of debt. I think many of us are, that are here this morning have debt that we need to get out of. And if you're here this morning and you, you want to take steps towards that, immediate steps, maybe on your communication card, just say for Pastor Craig's eyes only, I can get you uh, connected to a couple uh, very gifted financial counselors that would help you for free just to chart out a short-term plan. And then also this fall, we're going to have Financial Peace University. We have several families in our congregation who have been impacted, who have gotten out of debt because of FPU, of this class. We typically offer it in the summer, but we're going to offer it in the fall. And I would love to you, for, for you to be a part of that. And if you're interested in that as well, please that mark, mark that on your communication card and put it in the offering plate um, after, uh, after I pray. And then third is to tithe. Maybe for some of us, our step is to move towards tithing is giving 10%. And, and perhaps it's been irregular. Um, but again, with no shame or guilt, maybe this summer, maybe uh, these summer days where you say, you know what, I'm going to give that 10%. Um, I realize it's been up and down, but not with guilt, um, not with shame. As it says in Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, I'm going to do it with a cheerful heart. I'm going to be a cheerful giver. I just want to give back to God. Because God is a generous God who provides for me as well. And then lastly, is to look for ways to be generous. One of my prayers um, each week is to begin the week by saying, God, who's a person that I can touch this week and make a difference? Um, Where is an opportunity for me to be generous and to make a difference in somebody's life? Begin with a prayer with that and see where God takes you. I close with that quote from Yancey. 
Mostly I wish I did not have to think about money at all, but I must somehow come to terms with the Bible's very strong statements about money. I pray that as you confront that issue and deal with it and talk about it with your spouse or with friends or with family members, that God would lead you towards it's time to give. Let me pray. Father God, we give thanks this morning and thank you for this teaching on giving. And Lord, we come um, to you knowing that our giving, our financial giving is a part of our worship. That worship isn't relegated to prayer or singing songs, but actually it's all-encompassing. It also includes our money. Uh, So God, with grace and with freedom, we come to you uh, desiring to take a step this morning. For some of us, it's to move from being impulsive givers to being obedient givers. Others of us, it's moving from being an obedient giver to actually being a generous giver. Through it all, God, we don't do it to be impressive. Uh, We don't do it so that others can hear sort of the cacophony of the sound of our giving. We do it for you because we love you. And we want to bring glory and honor to your name in the advancement of your kingdom and for the salvation of all humanity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.